From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Michael Cohen is addressing the court right now. He just walked through how he committed eight counts, including tax evasion on his personal income taxes, giving a false statement to a bank. And then critically, he just described how he violated campaign finance laws two ways. The jury has found Paul Manafort guilty of eight of the 18 counts, the other 10. There has been a mistrial uh, declared. So it's possible that Tuesday, August 21, 2018, was the most significant day so far in the rollicking saga of the Russia investigation and all sorts of other legal perils surrounding the president of the United States. And so we are releasing this podcast ahead of schedule earlier, my conversation with my very dear friend, super smart, former federal prosecutor, Joyce Vance, who uh, was the United States attorney in the Northern District of Alabama when I was a U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. And we basically, uh, in real time, last evening, as the news was still unfolding, sort of sorted out what the hell is going on with respect to both the Cohen case and his guilty plea that came a little bit out of nowhere, although it wasn't completely unexpected, and the conviction of Paul Manafort at a trial a few hundred miles south in the Eastern District of Virginia on eight counts. Literally within the space of, I think, less than an hour, the president's former personal lawyer and his fixer, as well as his former campaign manager, were convicted of federal crimes, one by a jury and another by his own admission of guilt. It's pretty extraordinary. It doesn't get any bigger than that. And so we wanted to bring this to you as quickly as possible. Joyce was one of my favorite colleagues in the U.S. attorney community. She's smart. Uh, She's a career prosecutor. She calls it like she sees it. You may have seen her uh, commentary on MSNBC and other shows on television. She breaks it down uh, day after day, as well as anyone that I know. And she's been long overdue to be on this show. Like you, we have a lot of questions. You know, what does the Michael Cohen plea mean? Uh, Do the odds of impeachment go up? Do the odds of further indictments go up? What happens in the Paul Manafort case? Is he definitely going to jail? How long is he going to jail for? Um, Will the prosecutors retry him on the counts for which there was no agreement by the jury? Lots and lots of questions. We try to answer them for you. Stay tuned. Here's why I'm a big fan of Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is ready for anything, and I mean anything. If a storm takes out your power, Simply Safe is ready. If an intruder cuts your phone line, Simply Safe is ready for that too. Nobody wants to prepare for the worst case scenario, but that's what makes Simply Safe home security system so great. It is always ready for anything life throws at you, and it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Simply Safe only charges you what's fair. You get 24-7 professional security monitoring for only $14.99 a month with no contracts and no hidden fees. Just go to simplysafe.com slash preet today. That's simplysafe.com slash preet to protect your home and family today. simplysafe.com slash preet. So way back when I was a student, I had a series of hideous and lumpy couches. I even had a futon, like all students do. Over the years, I've upgraded to more comfortable and less ugly living room furniture. But my new living room upgrade is an armchair from Burrow. Burrow brings style and comfort to a whole new level and ships to your door fast and free. 
Your relationship with your couch, or chair in my case, will truly never be the same. Burrow chairs and sofas are super comfortable, so at least I can try to relax when I shout at, I mean, watch the news. Personally, I ordered a charcoal chair. You can customize the color, size, even the armrest height and leg color. Shipping is fast and free, unlike the rest of the furniture industry. Also, fun fact, it has a built-in USB charger, which is handy since you may have noticed that I like to tweet. Enjoy 30 days of cozy on your comfortable burrow sofa, risk-free, or try out burrow at one of their partner showrooms today. Create your own design and get $75 off your order by going to burrow.com slash preet. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash preet for $75 off your purchase. Burrow. Clever, uncompromising furniture for modern life at home. Joyce Vance, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Preet. So let me just say off the bat, for folks who are listening, it is 6.01 p.m. on a Tuesday, August 21st, and I have just come through, and I know you also have, uh, witnessing the craziest 90 minutes that I can remember uh, ever in terms of legal developments that affect the President of the United States. Would you agree with that? Or maybe just Tuesday in the Trump administration. <laughs> no, I, do you agree that today, this Tuesday, yeah. was a different kind of Tuesday and a more significant Tuesday than most? This is different, and I, I think everybody is experiencing a range of emotions from surprise um, all the way on through to the very sobering thought that we're hearing legal developments about this presidency that no one really wants to hear about any presidency. That, I would agree with that. So just to recap quickly— the, the two things that were happening, literally like on split screen, on cable news, back and forth, two things. And I kept wondering which thing would happen first and which thing would be you know, more significant to the future. You had the jury deliberating in the Paul Manafort trial in the Eastern District of Virginia on 18 counts, uh, various, various federal crimes. And the jury was, uh, you know, looked like it was coming to a little bit of a, of a stalemate or a standstill on some counts. And at the same time, uh, word came out that Michael Cohen, uh, the president's former lawyer and quote-unquote fixer, was pleading guilty in court. And all of those things are unfolding throughout the day. Which one did you think was going to become the more important story, and which one do you think is the more consequential story? I think it has to be the news of the Cohen plea. Even though we've—I think we've all been looking forward to this, right? It seemed— just so likely that Cohen would be charged. It seemed likely that he would have no option other than to plead, and he's been so radio silent for about the last 10 days that it looked like that was in the works. But then you see the actual charges and and realize that he's being charged with campaign finance violations that directly involve the president. That has to be the one that has more legs. It was an odd thing for me to watch because the Cohen... So let's talk about the Cohen case before we talk about Manafort. The Cohen case... Is, is odd for me, in a sense, because it's being handled by the office that I used to lead for a number of years. And I know all the people on it. I, I saw the, the press conference a few minutes ago that was given by the deputy U.S. attorney, the acting you know, U.S. attorney for the purposes of the Cohen case, because the, the U.S. attorney has recused himself, Rob Kazami, on the courthouse steps with all sorts of folks standing to the side of him, uh, most of whom I hired, if not all of whom, uh, and or promoted, so it was this feeling that, you know, the case is in good hands with folks that I know very, very, very well and work with very closely. Let, let's just review what the charges are. And again, apologies to everyone in the audience 
if we are processing this literally at the same time as uh, we're reading the documents. So, <laughs> we're like talking and processing all at once, so, right? So, if, so just a couple of minutes ago, my folks brought in to the studio a copy of the of what's called a criminal information to which uh, Michael Cohen pled guilty in the plea agreement. And they're basically three sets of charges, right, Joyce? Yeah, I think that that's right. We've got some tax charges. There's one count that's sort of a, a bank fraud count, an institution fraud count. And then there are these campaign finance charges. So let's just talk about how odd it is that Michael Cohen was not charged in an indictment uh, or a criminal complaint uh, that he could see, he could get discovery, uh, he could have some proceedings in court, he could fight them, he could go to trial. How unu- And I'll tell you how unusual it is in mine also. How unusual is it in your experience that a defendant of this type uh, pleads guilty to a charge um, right off the bat? So to be fair, we don't know if he got some form of discovery behind the scenes before this That's happened. That's true. It's rare, but it But if he, if he didn't get indictment behind the scenes, I'd say that it's relatively um, rare for this to happen without him seeing the discovery and putting the government's feet to the fire. But um, – Preet, before we go any further, I, I just have to say you've got to be remarkably proud of the office that you led because I heard that press conference in process too, and I heard Kazami say we will not fear prosecuting additional campaign finance cases and the rule of law is here, and it was really a stirring moment. I hope his comments will be captured and played over and over for people because I thought that was remarkable. The rule of law applies and that for uh, law enforcement, all of whom are gathered here, uh, it, is, it is our commitment that we will pursue and vindicate uh, those who, uh, who choose to break the law and vindicate the majority of people um, who live law-abiding lives, um, who follow honest and fair dealing, and live lives of lawful behavior. I saw that too, and it was, and I should just say, I've known Rob Kazami for a long time. We were colleagues when he was the head of enforcement at the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, when I was a U.S. attorney, we did lots and lots of cases together, and we made announcements on uh, criminal cases that we brought and civil enforcement actions that he brought, and so he deserves a lot of a lot of credit for being independent and for pursuing this case, as he said in his comments, just like any other case. I mean, it's a special case, he noted, in a lot of ways, um, and I'd say the elephant in the room, is, uh, if you can use that term, is Donald Trump, but, you know, justice is done when all cases, large and small, are treated the same way and everyone is treated equally before the bar of justice. And that's essentially what he said. Absolutely. So a lot of the speculation about Michael Cohen has been this issue is, is he going to cooperate? Is he going to flip, as people say? And so all day the speculation was, leading up to this taping, which is very fortuitous, will he have a cooperation agreement with the government, which would, generally speaking, require him to be available to testify and provide information that the government deems to be of, um, of value. And then on the, on the side of the prosecution, they're obligated to make a, a motion, essentially, for lenience on the part of that person to make sure that all of his cooperation becomes known to the judge so he can get a lighter sentence at the end of the day. What we see in front of us and what you and I are both reading in real time is not a cooperation agreement, is it? No, it's not a cooperation agreement at all. It looks 
very close to a straight plea. The parties don't even agree on the sentence. They they have different interpretations of what the appropriate sentence is. So does that surprise that's you? That's not a hallmark of cooperation. Yeah, I think that's really surprising. It's your district, right? It is. Is that a typical <laughs> practice for, for Southern District of New York with a cooperation agreement? And that's not to say that they're not cooperating. I expect that there's an exchange going back and forth and, and they're sort of doing the dance. But I, I was really surprised that they had not agreed on sentencing. But put that, putting that aside, the, the issue of whether or not there is an agreement as to um, whether the government is going to make a motion to the court uh, or, mm-hmm. make, or make available to the court information that would result in a lower sentence, generally speaking, you would expect uh, someone charged with a crime or about to be charged with a crime to want that guarantee from the prosecutor. So the, the question sort of is, did they not find Michael Cohen to be credible? Uh, was his information not going to give substantial assistance to the prosecutors in bringing a case against someone else? I mean, what we're about to talk about in a second, which I think was the most momentous thing that happened today, was Michael Cohen saying in open court, essentially, that he committed the campaign finance violation in coordination with and in and at the direction of a, uh, a federal candidate for office, which if, from the surrounding documents, he means President Trump. He literally got up in court under oath during his guilty plea allocution in front of Judge Pauly in the Southern District of New York and said, I did this crime in coordination with and at the direction of the president or the person before he became the president. How stunning is that to you? And are you surprised, given that statement in court, that there's not a cooperation agreement? So on the one hand, I I thought it was absolutely stunning. I was listening to it in real time And what was running in the back of my head was the knowledge that Cohen has an extraordinarily capable defense lawyer who would have been certain to rehearse with him the importance of being absolutely truthful in court to avoid subjecting himself to additional perjury charges. So what we heard from Cohen today, I think, has the strong ring of truth to it. And and given that, and that Cohen can apparently offer at least some of that to prosecutors, that leads me to believe that although we didn't see a cooperation agreement today in this plea agreement, there's not one in the offing. But you make this really interesting point of why Cohen would have gone ahead and pleaded guilty without that assurance that he would get some sort of favorable treatment from prosecutors. You know, he gets a little bit of a bump down in sentencing just by virtue of pleading guilty, but he could have gotten that at any time. So I feel like there's a little bit more here that we don't know yet that's going on. Do you think um, that if the president was not the president and given the benefit of this prevailing uh, legal rule or conclusion by the Department of Justice that a sitting president cannot be indicted, but he was just a regular guy uh, who was subject to the same rule of law principles that you and I are, that he might have been charged with a campaign finance violation based on what you see here? You know, I think that there's this hesitation. This is an information. It hasn't been to the grand jury. I don't know if these campaign finance counts have been something that SDNY has been working with all along, the sort of thing that they believe that they have strong evidence to prove, or if the linchpin for them was having some sort of, let's just call it a confession from Cohen. Of course, we both know that a confession alone would not be enough to sustain a conviction of guilt, so they must have additional evidence. That makes it hard to walk away from the conclusion that if he were just private citizen Trump, he would not have found himself in that courtroom in Manhattan today. Do you think 
that a reason why prosecutors might find that Cohen's information about the president does not constitute substantial assistance. They, they have a legal uh, bar to charging the president, and so the information is not worthwhile, right? Do you, do you know what hmm. I'm saying? So Yeah, I do know what you're saying, and I think that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. I think you're uh, it's sort of like a law school exercise, right? The president cannot be indicted based on DOJ policy, so anything Cohen says about the president cannot uh, be assistance. I, I sort of doubt, though, that Mueller's folks would work that way. For one thing, they're writing this report that'll go up to Capitol Hill. Maybe that would ring the bell for being assistance in, in another matter. And certainly Cohen has assistance that he can offer on people beside the president. So I suspect that the holdup here is, you know, there's some some negative possibilities here, right? Maybe they've just found that Cohen isn't truthful. Um, maybe he's not willing to provide full information on all crimes that he knows have been committed either by himself or by others, which he will have to do in in order to successfully conclude a cooperation agreement. Can we pause there for a second? Um, because maybe mm-hmm. people don't understand this. You know, so you have a person who has information about a bad guy, you know, a mob figure or a bank robber or an insider trader or something, and they say, uh, and they come into your office when you were the U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Alabama or into my office, and they say, all right, you want this information against a bad guy, I have it, and I can give them to you on a silver platter. But then you also know that he has information about you know, someone else and that he can implicate someone else and he refuses to do so. What's the reason for not taking the cooperation from a guy who wants to selectively cooperate? You know, some prosecutors in some cases will find a way to do that. Maybe they'll carve out cooperation on family members for instance, is is one exception. But the value of a cooperator who's not being fully truthful is in in many ways diminished. This reminds me so much as a young prosecutor. I used to prosecute Dixie Mafia cases, and the Dixie Mafia operated on a surprisingly large nationwide scale. Um, But every time you brought in a Dixie Mafia cooperator, it was this really almost exhausting process of getting them to disclose all of the crimes that they were aware of because there were so many and so many people that they didn't want to cooperate regarding either because they were afraid of them or because they were family members. That, I think, is a little bit about what's going on here with Cohen. So this is the excitement of breaking news while we're in the middle of recording this? So I've just I been can't a- take any more today. Well, I'm going to read something to you. This is the statement of Lanny Davis, who was one of the lawyers for Michael Cohen. I'm just going to read it to you and... Listeners know that Joyce Vance has not heard this before, and I want to get your take on it because it's, it's, it's literally what we've been talking about for the last few minutes. So Lanny Davis says this, Michael Cohen took this step today so that his family can move on to the next chapter. This is Michael fulfilling his promise made on July 2nd to put his family and country first and tell the truth about Donald Trump. Fair enough. Then he goes on to say, quote, today he stood up and testified under oath that Donald Trump directed him to commit a crime by making payments to two women for the principal purpose of influencing an election. If those wow. payments, yeah, if those payments were a crime for Michael Cohen, then why wouldn't they be a crime for Donald Trump? Question mark, close quotes. That's from Lanny Davis just now. I feel like we should be on live television. 
What's your reaction to the Lanny Davis provocative statement? I think it would be difficult to draw any other conclusion, right? What he says is just what it is based on what happened in court. The question, I guess the more subtle question is, why does he need to say that? Is that part of the dance that they're doing with prosecutors as as though to emphasize what Cohen has to offer, even if there's something else that he wants to hold back? But of course, I'm speculating wildly. Yeah. Um, it just it just seems very odd, right? That he has he has this information about somebody who's the sitting president. He's making a very um, you know shocking allegation forthrightly after saying he would take a bullet for the president, and he he and he and he pleads straight up. Anyway, maybe this is just sort of not as interesting because it's just lawyer talk. But the the, the fundamental well, but issue. Before we move off yeah. of it, though, let me just say maybe maybe the problem here is what evidence Cohen has to back this up. For instance, if he's got emails that make this clear, then it should be a done deal. So perhaps this isn't the the strong evidence that the government wants. Yeah, look, maybe it's it's a way for Cohen to get get back to the president because it's not not necessary to his um, making out a factual basis for his guilty plea to say exactly what he said. In other words, people plead guilty all the time uh, for crimes that they have committed with other people and they're often pretty minimalist in what they say about other folks and what the role of other folks was, right? I think that's right. And as a prosecutor, I'm testing everything that comes out of Cohen's mouth. I'm taking nothing at face value. You don't believe a cooperating witness because you want to. You have to literally go through and truth test every single statement that they make. But, and Cohen has a reason now because he's been abandoned. He's been called a liar and a terrible person by Rudy Giuliani. And so maybe he wants to stick it to the president a little bit. And is that another reason why you might look a little bit with a grain of salt on his Yeah, statement? absolutely. I'd be really careful. Cohen is not a choir boy. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that, that's the funny thing about people who become cooperating witnesses or almost become cooperating witnesses. One day, they're terrible and they should go to prison. And the other day, you know, people tend to sympathize with them because they will help perhaps prosecute somebody that you don't like. And in this case, right. for some you people, that's the president. Th- it's a thug, but it's our thug. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so Joyce, it's stunning information. The statement that, again, we've discussed why there are reasons you might take it with a grain of salt, but it remains a, uh, a very provocative, incriminating statement echoed by the lawyer. What do you think happens next here? So I think what happens next is not on public view. The next stage in in the Cohen part of this case is for Cohen and his lawyers to meet with prosecutors in Southern District of New York. And we'll find out ultimately, is it simply this indictment of Cohen or this today information with nothing else? or, Or is there more that comes out of Cohen and perhaps his cooperation down the road? But do you think it's also possible that this is it? You know, he said his piece. He got in the dig at Trump. Um, the lawyer got to make his statement. He pled guilty. A sentencing date will be set, or probably has been set. Actually, I didn't, I didn't see if that happened in the in the proceedings today. And then he goes and on his merry way, and they argue about sentencing, and then that's it. And that's the last we hear from Cohen. Do you think that's also a possibility? I guess that's possible. But have have you ever seen a case like this with such volatile actors and with so much sort no, of let's no. just say smoke <laughs> no going on, and then it just ends? <laughs> no one's ever seen a case like this ever. Well, that's true, too. But but I, I mean just the quantum of publicly available information about potential criminal acts. I think it's unlikely that it stops here. But just the last point, maybe again, the lawyer's point because I'm stuck on this. Have you often seen a case where someone you know, negotiated a deal, 
entered into a plea agreement, pled straight up, and then sometimes, some, and then sometime later, entered into a cooperation agreement where they got leniency. Yes, frequently and particularly in cases that involved crime organizations. So you take what you can get from the guy now, you leave open the possibility for cooperation later. So there might be a second act here. Absolutely. Okay. So, so uh, Joyce, I'm doing something again that uh, I've never done before, which is I keep getting interrupted with texts and emails that I want to get your reaction to. This is Brett Stevens, conservative columnist with The New York Times, who tweeted out a few minutes ago, quote, I've been skeptical about the wisdom and merit of impeachment. Cohen's guilty plea changes that. The president is clearly guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. He should resign his office or be impeached and removed from office, close quote. Do you think we're going to be hearing more of that kind of talk in light of the Cohen plea? I think we will. I think we'll hear it from more conservative columnists. But the real issue is whether it will uh, stiffen the spines of the people in the House and ultimately in the Senate and move them towards impeachment. You know, the president is going to continue to look at his popularity polls and base his decisions on, on that. And perhaps that's true of the folks who would have to begin impeachment proceedings as well. Here, you know, one more thing. Rudy Giuliani finally has put out a statement uh, saying, quote, on the Cohen plea, quote, there is no allegation of any wrongdoing against the president in the government's charges against Mr. Cohen. It is clear that, as the prosecutor noted, Mr. Cohen's actions reflect a pattern of lies and dishonesty over a significant period of time, close quote. Do you have a reaction to that statement by Rudy, which is actually more articulate than a lot of things he said recently? And, and he, I'd love to have some of whatever it is that he's smoking. <laughs> um, you know, uh, this could, statement, could you, could you respond to him by saying truth isn't truth? Uh I may have already said that once today. You know, <laughs> I think Rudy's problem is actually that he's going to find out that the truth is very much the truth and that it comes home to roost at some point. What happened in this courthouse today to say that it doesn't involve the president, you know, sure, it doesn't involve collusion with Russia, but to say it doesn't involve, it doesn't implicate the president for involvement in the campaign finance violations, it's just wrong. Do you think the likelihood of impeachment has gone up today? If I'm not asking if it's typical, likely, but has, has, it gone, has it gone up? I hear you. I mean, if this was a typical presidency and if politicians were behaving in the way that they normally behave, you would expect that we would have inched closer towards impeachment today. But my crystal ball on this presidency has been bad. It doesn't operate like a typical presidency. Trump's voters don't operate um, – in many ways like voters for other politicians do, I would have to think that this does inch us closer to impeachment, but we'll, we'll see. You heard it here from Joyce Vance on impeachment. Paul Manafort was on trial on 18 counts for federal crimes in the Eastern District of Virginia. <clears throat> I think it was all five tax avoidance. That's right. He was convicted of— Two bank fraud and then one FBAR count. Yeah, and the FBAR count means— he, he didn't make the disclosure that he had a, an, an interest in a foreign bank account. So it's an interesting split verdict. I'm not sure what it signals about the jury. I did hear from someone who was in the courtroom that there was one juror who was off to the side. The other jurors were sitting together. That sometimes signals that you have one holdout. Um, but we don't know, and I'm not sure that we will find out 
whether it was just one holdout on these other counts or whether there was a larger number of jurors who simply didn't believe that the government met its burden of proof on 10 of the counts in this indictment. The important thing, though, is that at sentencing, the government will be able to use all of the conduct that Manafort is charged with as relevant conduct. It will all count against him at sentencing, and he will be looking before he even heads into next month's second trial in the District of Columbia um, at the risk of a lot of time in federal prison. A couple of things just sort of so people understand about the law that I've been getting asked a lot today. On the remaining 10 counts that caused the mistrial, the government can still go to trial on those counts later, correct? That's right. The government can choose to go ahead and retry because those weren't acquittals. Those were were charges that the jury couldn't resolve. And because they're in the Eastern District of Virginia with the rocket docket, I would expect that that would be a relatively quick decision and that they would be out to trial pretty fast. Someone just handed me a note suggesting that the court said they need to decide by August 29th. I think that that's consistent with the rocket docket. Would you, you're the U.S. attorney, and I was asked this question earlier on television, actually, uh, as it was happening. This is your case. You got the conviction on eight. You got the mistrial uh, on 10. What's your decision on going forward on the remaining 10? So my off-the-cuff reaction is that I would not retry those counts. I got enough convictions here on serious charges. I'd move into sentencing and, and go on in the District of Columbia as much to economize on government resources as, as anything else. Yeah. My, my answer is similar. Um, what I said was, I'd like to see what happens in the District of Columbia and then just make sure that the level of accountability you have on the eight counts is is similar to the level of accountability you would have otherwise had on all 18 counts. Now, here's the thing that happens on, on TV all the time that drives me crazy and used to drive me especially crazy when I had the job. Everyone on TV has been yelling about how... Um, Paul Manafort is looking at 300 years in jail and the rest of his life, or 400 years. Explain to folks why that is kind of misleading. So federal sentencing is really a complex critter. They're the federal statutes, and they almost always contain a final sentence that says something like, and the sentence for violating this this section of the criminal code will be not more than 30 years. And so people look at that and they say, oh, 30 years. And if you've got 10 30-year counts, they somehow think it's 300 years. But here's how it works in reality. Sentencing is conducted under regulations called the sentencing guidelines. And they use a two-prong sort of a calculation based uh, in one part on the defendant's prior criminal history On the other hand, on his conduct in the offense or offenses for which he's being charged, and they come up with a range of sentencing. And that range is typically far lower than the statutory maximum. And also, it doesn't stack. So in other words, if you've got 10 counts, it's not each count plus the other. Usually, the longest sentence becomes the defendant's sentence. Did I explain that right? I think you explained it very well. I mean, in other words, what people think when they see a count of conspiracy— and then a count of bank robbery, for example, you know, conspiracy to commit bank robbery, and then a separate count of bank robbery, people think, well, the statutory maximum for one is X years, and then you add it to the statutory maximum for the second, which is X years, and which is why when you have many counts, it looks like you're looking at hundreds of years in prison, when in actuality, if you get convicted of both the conspiracy to commit the bank fraud and also the actual bank fraud, your sentence is not going to be any greater, generally speaking. 
Exactly. That's almost always so, and unless in rare cases where the judge might do something right. different. But There's sort of a natural redundancy in sometimes in these counts. Yeah. Do you wish people would make that clear on television? It really annoys me. And, and the <laughs> other thing that sometimes bothers me is white-collar sentences can be very low under the guidelines. As a prosecutor, I sometimes found it very disturbing to get a low sentence, for instance, for a former CEO or CFO who had been involved in manipulation of the books at his company, as opposed to someone who was um, selling, you know, I won't say small amounts of, of drugs, but for instance, not an enormously large amount of cocaine or methamphetamine. Um, can you explain to folks why on earth Paul Manafort is facing a second trial on, you know, different but related charges? in the District of Columbia, because that's probably confusing to some folks. So this is entirely of Manafort's own doing. When the government, when special counsel's office was ready to supersede or to amend the indictment against him with additional charges, they realized that they didn't have venue in the District of Columbia. Under the uh, federal laws, you can only bring charges in districts where the defendant committed the crimes. And and so although the original crimes, there was both jurisdiction and venue in D.C., for this latter group that they wanted to amend, the proper venue was in the Eastern District of Virginia. And very sensibly, special counsel appears to have gone to Manafort and said, look, if you'll waive venue, we'll just go ahead and supersede and bring all of these charges in the District of Columbia, one trial. But Manafort's lawyers, for whatever reason, decided the better strategy for them was to have two separate trials. I wonder if they're rethinking that Yeah, what's the, I mean, so the logic of that, you know, in the Eastern District of Virginia, they might have a better jury pool? You know, we saw this little maneuver where they tried to get out of Alexandria and down to, I think it was Roanoke, which is a much more conservative part of Virginia in the Western District of Virginia. That, of course, failed. I don't know if that was the strategy from from the get-go. But one additional risk that they face here is that Manafort has been convicted in the Eastern District of Virginia. When he goes into the District of Columbia, he will have some criminal history. It, it won't be someone who's never been convicted of a crime. I don't know if or how much that will influence his sentence in the District of Columbia, but they've certainly run a risk there. So Paul Manafort going to jail, Yes. Yes, absolutely. And how long do you Unless think? he decides he has a change of heart and wants to cooperate. Right. But even then, I think he has to serve some time. But at this point, the only thing that saves him from going to prison for some period of time, you think, is cooperation against someone significant. He could still cooperate. Um, we don't know if the government is interested in that cooperation or what kind of deal the government would offer. If it were my district, he would still have to serve a good bit of time. Final question, you know, that is something looming and swirling around in people's minds. And the closer we get to people who are close to the president and people perhaps still in a position to harm the president through a legal process is the question of pardons. How worried should people be that President Trump is just going to often pardon Manafort or someone else? This president's favorite part of being in office are the parts where he has absolute power. He seems to love using the pardon process in a relatively indiscriminate fashion. 
you know, you and I were both part of an administration where the pardon power was used to do justice and to right some old wrongs. And it was very carefully calculated to do justice while preserving safety in communities. It was an orderly process. There were rules. There are a lot of people who were concerned about uniformity. None of that applies here. And so if this president feels threatened, and there's no way he doesn't feel threatened tonight, you got to think that it's even odds that he might try to deliver pardons and see if he can save himself. And the only thing that will save us if he chooses to do that will be for Congress to see that that's, you know, everyone talks about the red line that can't be crossed. Pardoning someone who can testify against you, whether it's Manafort or Cohen, that has to be the red line. If it's not, we're in terrible trouble. Final thing that I want you to share with my audience is you and I share a memory from the time that we were U.S. attorneys together. And I also should tell folks, you know, we have been friends from the beginning when we both got uh, nominated and confirmed on the same day. And I got to know you very well over the next number of years. And there was an occasion when there was a U.S. attorneys conference in Washington, D.C. And all the U.S. attorneys, you know, the 90 some odd of us, all had a photo opportunity at the White House. And we're all sort of standing, uh, you know, the short people in the front, the taller people in the back. And, uh, the president of the United States at the time, Barack Obama, comes in to give us a little pep talk. Uh, tell folks what he said to us. You know, so many people wrote the words down because they were striking at the time. He told us, I appointed you, but you don't serve me. You serve the American people. And I expect you to act with independence and integrity. Yeah, I remember that very well. Um, and I think those words uh, were not lost on the folks sitting in the room. Because as you said, you know, I, I, I hired you, as you said, but you have a more important job than serving me. It would be good if people remember that today. It was a do the right thing moment. I, I think that that's something that applies to everyone today, too. Uh, Joyce, thank you for, uh, for being on the show at such a critical moment and dealing with my sort of breaking news interruptions. Um, people, I think, will really appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics, tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Jake McAbee, and Vinay Basti. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.